This is Sean Striegel, Senior Vice President of Live Nation New York, and you're listening to Promoter 101. All rise. This podcast is now in session. The Honorable Host, Dan Steinberg, presiding. You may all be seated. It's Promoter 101, number 56. Here to argue your case, W. Luke Pierce. Dan, it's been an exciting few weeks in the road. Glad to have you in Nashville, but when now we're back in the studio. Promoter 101, and we're going to have a big show this week. We're joined, arguably, by the biggest agent in the world at the moment, from handling the biggest names in country, including Dirks Bentley, Luke Bryan, Eric Church, Chris Stapleton, from WME Nashville. We got the partner and co-head of that office, Mr. Jay Williams, in the podcast. We've also got UTA's head of marketing, Eddie Clemens, talking about how he rolled out that Guns N' Roses reunion tour and so much more. And Billions Corp, Adam Voith, drops by to turn the tables on Steiny. Amplify and Billboard's Dave Brooks will join us for the news of the week. Hey everyone, this is Cindy Lynott, Kira Finkenberg, Patty Ann Tarleton, Whitney Bond, Amy Miller, John Holiday, Marcy Allen, Paula Palazzo, Becca Leifer, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101. We want to thank everyone that's come out to support us on our live tour, and we are proud to announce our first tour stop of the 2018 season. New Orleans, January 16th. Promoter 101 is going to come to FlyCon for the very first time ever with special guests. The Lockin' and Brooklyn Bulls presents Mr. Peter Shapiro. We're coming, Big Easy, and we're bringing Shappy with us. Make sure between now and then you stay in tune with us. Follow us on Twitter. Steiny's at The Jew. The show's at Promoters 101. That's Promoters, plural. And I'm at W. Luke Pierce. We want to hear from you. Luke and I are always doing the talking, and it just doesn't have to be that way. We're ready to listen to you. Send us your ideas and emails to steiny at promoter101.net. We can't wait to hear what's on your mind. And if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you podcast. Please help us spread the word about this podcast. Tell your friends, tell your family, drop us a review if you got a moment. If you miss any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. This week, we have a special reissue of episode 15 with Alice Cooper's manager, the supermensch, Shep Gordon. If you haven't heard it, it's new to you. And I think we want to announce a new theme song challenge. We love our current theme song, entitled Tongue Bath, and created by Mr. Craig Newman from APA. But if you want to take a crack at rearranging and recording it, if we like it, we'll use it on the show. Note, you got to be willing to waive any rights you have so we can use the track, but we want to hear your versions. Can't wait to hear a bluegrass version of Promoter 101. Crystal Pistol, we're calling your name. Play us some banjo. Yo, this is Tommy Lee. Yeah, that's T. Lee. And you're listening to Promoter 101. Fucking turn this shit up, bitches. Time for the news of the week. This week, we're lucky enough to be joined by the friend of the podcast from Amplify and Billboard Magazine, senior correspondent for touring. Welcome, Mr. Dave Brooks. Time for News of the Week. This week, we are joined by 
Amplified Media and Billboard Magazine's Dave Brooks. Welcome, Dave, to the podcast. It's been a while. I know. Thanks for having me, Steiny. I always enjoy being on your show. It's always great to actually have a real reporter giving us the news. What's going on out there, man? Well, we have a big breaking story over at AEG this week. Dana Dufine, you know, she was a former Madison Square Garden booker. She moved out to L.A. to take the forum gig, you know, at the request of Shelly Azoff. And they, they became really close until suddenly they weren't in March 2016. Dufine left. We didn't hear from her for a while. And today we're learning the news that she's popped up at rival AEG. It seems like the venue wars that we've uh, been reporting are heating up once again with this hire. AEG, Live Nation, Oakview Group. It just continues to astound me, the back and forth and the fights and Man, you, you, you kind of sing it with the conferences coming. It's like you guys at Billboard have just announced Jay Masiano's doing like the big keynote speech. Polestar Alive just announced Rapino is doing their big keynote speech. I mean, you're going head to head all the way across. It's like from the magazines to the conferences to the venues. It's like the war is on, man. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, at Billboard and Amplify, we are still a neutral observer. Yeah, we're you know we're competing against OVGs, Polestar, and venues today. But you know, we're trying to thread the needle. We're trying to keep it neutral. But like you're saying, I mean, Marciano's at ours. And Rapino's at Polestar, so I wouldn't say you were mistaken reading into that. You, you, you're you on to something. Well, I don't think you have to be a genius to figure out that there's clearly a couple teams lining up here, but it'll be fun to continue to watch and uh, pick through it as we go. What else is going on out there in the world of rock? Well, you know, speaking of Azoff and OVG, there was an item that popped up on page six this week in uh, New York Post that Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein attempted to buy Rolling Stone when it was put up to bid by Jan Warner earlier this year. Now, he pulled out of the bid after all the sexual allegations came out against him, but buried in that story was an item that we confirmed that Irving Azoff and James Dolan made a pretty substantial bid for Rolling Stone. We're hearing in the $30 million range, which you know would be interesting to see what they could do with that title. I checked with the Azoff crew. They said that it's not an OVG deal, so it wouldn't tie into Polestar or Venue City. It'd be much bigger than either of those two. And $30 million is, is not chump change by anybody's template. But Jesus Christ, this is getting good. They're going to have Polestar. They're going to have Venues today. They could have Rolling Stone magazine. Seemingly manager, promoter, one side of the world and controlling the news story. It's mammoth. It's a lot to offer a client, that's for sure. We'll probably know about a sale by the end of the year. So we'll have a little more clarity then. Dave, the whole Kid Rock thing, what do you know about this story? Okay, so last week, Kid Rock announced the 2018 Greatest Show on Earth tour. Immediately, I think myself and other people in the media checked, and we realized that you know the tagline, The Greatest Show on Earth, has been a trademark of Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus since at least the 1960s. Of course, Barnum & Bailey and Ringling Brothers is owned by Feld, and although they shut the circus down earlier this year after a 150-year run. They still own all the intellectual property, including the tagline, The Greatest Show on Earth. So we checked with Feld. They said they were caught off guard by the announcement, and they're talking to their lawyers about what they should do. While I wouldn't expect a big public fight, I think that 
ultimately Fell is gonna is in a good position to collect a serious licensing and royalty check from Kid Rock, who by already kind of announcing his tour has basically violated their trademark. But you're positive they didn't get permission in advance to use that title. Yeah, I spoke with a spokesman for Fell Entertainment, and he confirmed to me that they learned of the tour name the day that it was announced by promoter Live Nation, and they were caught off guard by it. Everybody's got a lot on their plates. Things do get slipped and missed by. What else is going on in the world, my friend? Live Nation has this employee in the UK, Andrew McRae. Last week, he was arrested for voyeurism. He was caught on the, near the London Underground using a pin camera tied to a briefcase, pushing it under the legs of unsuspecting women on the subway and surreptitiously filming them. This officer watched him do it several times, confronted him, and arrested him. Now, he now faces seven counts in the UK. He's lost his job. It says he's, it says he's, his wife filed for divorce and he's moved in with his mom. So it's a sad story. You know, this guy had felt like he had to do this and now is having his life ruined. Dave, this is pretty fucked up. I got nothing here. Hey, let's talk about something more exciting and on the up and up. Billboard Conference is coming up. Can you give us a little preview of what you guys have in store for us all? Yes, absolutely. We're really thrilled this year. We're back in L.A. for a second time. Uh, we're going to be at the Montage in Beverly Hills November 14th and 15th. This year, we're having panels and awards for everyone from Diplo, Tim and Faith. We're doing a TED Talk with Reggie Watts. And Hassan Minaj from The Daily Show is hosting our awards. Not only that, but we're doing Q&As with Jay Marciano from AEG, Tyce DeClorius from Friends at Work. Our president, John Amato, is sitting down for a first-time interview with Gary Richards and Randy Phillips from Livestyle to hear about what their vision is for that company You know, post-SFX bankruptcy. We've got panels on Latin, ticketing, hip-hop. I mean, we really covered the entire gamut of programming. Well, I got to tell you, I wasn't impressed with Billboard last year. I know there's been a total change of the guard. I've always loved the New York hang, that bar experience at the Roosevelt, the highlight of the industry year. Is the bar set up at this hotel at the Montage much better than last year's? Yes, the bar setup is a lot better. Excited to come back to L.A. and see what you guys have this time. I think everybody gets a second chat to make it great. Well, thank you. We've been working really hard on it. And, uh, yes, come back to L.A. And and if you want, you know, I'll say I'll say this about New York. If you want to be in New York next year, you know, tell us. Uh, tell, tell our tell our the editors. Open-minded coming back. Can't wait to see what you guys have in store. And I'm looking forward because I know that you guys are going to rebound big this year with an amazing conference. So excited to see you there as well. Dave Brooks, Amplified Billboard Magazine on Promoter 101, helping us out with the news today. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you, Tony. I always love being on the show. Finally, we want to shine a spotlight on Billion Corp's Babacud. He is one of the hardest working men in the business, an amazing foodie, and a great family man, making him this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. Congrats goes out to you, Bobby Cudd. Well deserved. Bobby Cudd needs to come on this podcast and just, maybe he's the one that needs to be voicing some of these voiceovers. Bobby Cudd has an amazing voice for radio. He would be incredible at this. Hello, this is Sarah Mertz. I work at Eventbrite, and you are listening to Promoter 101. This week, we've got a special interview preview. From Encore's Larry LeBlanc. Very excited to have on the phone, legendary rock journalist, Larry LeBlanc. How you doing, Larry? 
Oh, really, really, really good. I got to say, I love the encore pieces that you do with Celebrity Access. My partner, Jason Zink's your feature. I love, by the way, the lead I was able to come out with, Jason, because I'm thinking, you know, he's telling me about knowing every auditorium. And I mean, I started naming different venues. He says, oh, yeah, the load-ins is there. Here's how many uh, seats it takes. And I mean, I was trying for some pretty obscure places, right? Oh, no, I've been there. Oh, yeah, he's Rain Man when it comes to that quite proud of the lead that I had of President Trump is seeking a consultant to evaluate America's integrated network roads and highways. Jason Zink's name should come up, as in the case of the late alt-country icon, Graham Parsons. There's been 20,000 roads in America. Jason's gone down, down, down. You know, and, and it's true. I mean, I really tried out some really obscure places, and he knew them. Well, I got to say that, you know, Jason likes to find the most incredible place to eat anywhere he goes. And it's become like this adventure for him on the road. And you can ask him pretty much anything. Him and also Brian Hill at CAA, they're like apps. You can say to them, hey, I'm going to the obscurest part of Iowa. Where should I eat? And both of them will have a recommendation in seconds for you. It's great. That's what Jason's like. He's like an old schooled jazz musician who's been around the country. And not many people have. A lot of the major promoters you deal with, they know the big markets, but they don't know the small ones, you know. Jason knows the big ones. He knows the small ones. It's a great article. We've got it posted on the website now, a link to that great article that you wrote about my partner, Jason Zink. I want to hear what he tells you, what he didn't tell me. This is Eric Dimenstein from Ground Control Touring. I'm on Promoter 101. In our featured interview this week, we talked about it at the top of the podcast, but we're going to be joined by arguably the biggest agent in the world at the moment. This guy handles Dirks Bentley, Luke Bryant, Eric Church, Chris Stapleton, and so many more. Recently, he was named the co-head of the William Morris Endeavor Nashville office. Please welcome to Promoter 101, Jay Williams. Promoter 101, we're at Nashville, and I'm hanging out with Agent to the Stars, Jay Williams. Welcome. Hey, Dan. Dude, thank you so much for taking time. Glad to be here. So we can talk about the moment your artists are having in a minute, but I want to start with most people don't get one major act in their career, and if they do, it doesn't sustain. You, right out of the box, the first three acts you ever signed, give them up. Well, they weren't technically the first three acts. The first act was actually Nickel Creek, and then Dirks was second. And right after that, in uh, the next couple of years, two or three years, was Luke and Eric. Not in Luke, that Brian, order. Luke, Brian, Eric, Eric Church. Church. Yeah. Okay, so that's four artists that would be considered a career artist that, if any other agent had them. But that alone, and that's not even talking about Chris Stapleton and what, what happened later and the other artists that you happen to represent. But you're talking about multiple stadium acts, multiple arena acts, and that's insane. God gave with both hands. Yeah, I think so. I feel very, very fortunate. I mean, there's certainly something to be said for... You've got ears. You, you you know talent when you see it. Well, that's one of my favorite parts of this job is is discovery. And before I had kids, I, I spent a lot of time going out and, and trying to discover and listen to music. And when I was first starting at uh, William Morris in 1997, 20 years ago this September, my wife now was my girlfriend at the time, was living in Atlanta, and I, there was nothing. I just went out almost every night and heard music, whether it was the Station Inn or the Sutler or Exit Inn. Our 12th and Porter, but we had a crew that just, you know, we lived and breathed live music. Something to be said for the fact that the scene here offers that. That's something that, like, if you're a social butterfly and you love music and you can 
stand to handle a drink or two in an evening, you right. can really be skyrocketed in this industry throughout the social networking of that. Yeah, and that's, I, I tell everyone, you know, young people that come to me and whether they're artists or they want to get in the industry, it could be a songwriter that's just thinking about moving to town. One of the first things I tell them is like, this town is very easy to make connections. Because there's a small group of places. It's getting a little bit trickier with the so many really people growing. I mean, here we look right out the window. We see yeah, one of the crane, big, uh, huge cranes. cranes. Yeah, there's a couple of them. But compared to L.A. or New York, I think it's a really easy town to network and sort of figure out who does what. And, you know, in the late 90s, Nashville was really changing. I mean, there was it was starting to get noticed a lot more for the, than just country. A&R people were starting to travel here more from New York and L.A. And the, uh, you know, contemporary scene and the Americana scene was really starting to take off in sort of the late 90, early 2000s. One thing about me is I love all kinds of music. I mean, I was, I was raised by parents who listened to music all the time and had super broad tastes. So so besides your artists, because I want to just take them out for a second, who are you listening to that you're really enjoying? But let's talk about who you don't book, because like, you have to say all of them, <laughs> to be fair. And I know you listen to your acts, but like outside oh, of the scope man. of what you book. You know, I, I... It's hard to turn on country radio and not hear who you book, but... Yeah, I, I'm a sucker for female singer-songwriters and, you know, guy singer-songwriters, too. When it's just me traveling around, like, on a family trip out west, it's it's heavy, a lot of bluegrass. There's this new band, Mipso, that I just sort of discovered recently. They've been around for a while, but I am listen to them. I really enjoy them. We don't book them. And, you know, a lot of, like, old classic stuff. I went through a pretty heavy Grateful Dead phase in high school and college and still listen to a lot of that and... A lot of Tom Petty the last week. That was awful. Huge Tom Petty fan. And just kind of all over the map musically, really. Okay. And you book mostly country and bluegrass. Yeah, and the, and the contemporary stuff out of Nashville. Something you Maddie fell in love with was a little bit more hard rocking. Oh, yeah, I a mean, lot of the time. And we signed, yeah, J. Roddy Watson, the business is a great example. And what, you know, when we work, We've got a, a very, pretty rapidly growing little contemporary business in Nashville. Seth Siegel just moved here. Maddie Elm's been doing it for a while, and we probably have another couple of people coming soon. And But any time that we sign, you know, a contemporary band, whether it's active rock or whatever, we're usually partnering with agents in L.A. and New York. But it's nice to do it out of here, and we're that's a huge growth area for us that we're excited about. I never really looked at music until... I sort of got in the country space as I never thought about music in terms of genre. You know, I went to the bookstore at my college where I attended it was a small liberal arts school. That was your record store. And they weren't it wasn't it was alphabetized. It wasn't even by genre. And that was, you know, I charged a lot of CDs in four years up there because the, 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 the manager of the bookstore had really great taste, you know, in music. And it was a lot of like kind of jammy stuff and some throwback blues. And he was really great sort of folk ear, too. All right. So let's talk about it can't just be amazing talent because you can't just book anybody you want. Some of it's got to be luck. Yeah, a lot of it is. And in your particular case... You and Dirks like lived together before he was a superstar, right? We did, and I tell this story a lot, but we met down at the station inn because we were both, I was playing in a bluegrass band, and we, you know, at a, for a time, we were doing like 20, 25, 30 dates a year. That was probably the busiest we ever were. But uh, I met Dirks through bluegrass down at the station inn, and he ended up renting out one of the rooms in our house for a while. And it was, man, it was rough back then. We, Woodmont Lane here in Nashville. This is pre-marriage days, right? Pre-marriage like, days. Oh, yeah. This is, this is, this is right when I moved here. Yeah. And uh, we had no air conditioning. 
no cable TV, and I would get up to go to the office early in the morning, you know, because I had to be there. I was the only guy in the mailroom, and it was, you know, now we have a team of mailroom people. Our office has grown so much, but back then there was one mailroom guy, and that was it. That's and when that you were over the, the lows, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I would have to go to the grocery store, and, you know, one agent like this kind of yogurt, one agent wanted this kind of soda, and and it was like being an indentured servant back then, you know. And Dirks would be kind of stumbling around in the morning, kind of waking up. And I would leave and go to work and come back, you know, early evening. And he would still be in the same spot. And there would be a few, you know, tall boy bush lights empty. And he would just be playing guitar. And he, we had this uh, Tony Rice instructional guitar DVD, uh, CD, or VHS, excuse me, called 60 Licks and 60 Minutes. It sounds like something else, but it was a guitar <laughs> instructional. <laughs> VHS and he he would just wear that out all day long but man that that was some fun times the other guy that lived with us is Fielding Logan from Q Prime who was originally Nickel Creek's road manager yeah yeah I helped uh, get Fielding that job he was at Flood Bumstead before that so the three of us lived together for a little bit and it was you know there were always guys over playing bluegrass and hanging out and we didn't have a whole lot but it 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 was awesome it was fun that's an amazing hang between the three of you because all three of you were a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from there, you know, I didn't like Dirks. I, I didn't even, wasn't really sure that's what he wanted to do. After he moved out, he started uh, playing music a lot more and he would play down. It's He started at Market Street Brewery on 2nd Avenue. And the stage is about the size of that desk right there. And it was him and then another guy, uh, like a mandolin player. And he would go down there and play. And I, we would, if we were, had needed to be downtown back then, which, you know, not many people were going downtown a lot in the you know, it wasn't it nights. wasn't like the Vegas like happening strip that right. down that Broadway is now. Yeah. I mean Roberts Tootsie's obviously has always been a tourist attraction, but Roberts really but the whole changed the scene when BR five four nine was playing there and yeah. it was really just a boot store and they were selling PBR out of coolers, you know. And Dirks was playing you know around the corner and doing a lot of cover stuff. He started putting a band together and and played at Wolfie's which is now Rippy's on the corner there, right by the arena. Oh, yeah, got it. I would go check on him, you know, every three or four months. I'd go down and see him play, and it just kept getting better and better. And then you start seeing, like, label people showing up. And there was one, Autumn House, who's now at Red Light. Autumn was an A&R person at Capitol and really, you know, was a huge fan and was there. And then you see Dungan start going down there and checking him out. And it was about that time that I thought, well, wow, this is really this is going to happen for him. And there weren't as many avenues back then. Like you were, country was way more specific um, in terms of what worked and what didn't on the, at the end of the 90s. And I feel like Dirks really changed a lot of that. His, his first single sounded different. He was a young guy and fun. And, and it was just a really great time. And, you know, he took off the first single was number one. So there was no struggle and really breaking him the, playing the you know the right strategy and figuring out how to sustain the touring was one of the one of the goals at the very beginning that is now look back god how this is probably 15 years later well it's an interesting case study which i like about dirks in particular so jason zink was at outback at the time who's yeah. now my partner yeah you were booking the act but this is your first act that developed into arena level act right right but it started earlier because scott was managing him Kernahan. Yep. So Scott was manager. Me and Jason. And Scott were doing- had a touring background. I mean, he right. Knew, he came from pace. He knew. He knew what he, he knew wanted country. to do. He knew country. He was the vet of all of us. Yeah. Well. Yeah. For sure. And on the touring side, like I learned a lot from him. I learned. You know, I've I've just been so lucky to be 
to have mentors in my life that whether it's Corin or Chuck Morris, you know, even to some extent to the guys in our building, Keith Miller, Tony D. There's just, there's a lot of guys that I sort of learned from the, you know, the agent training program wasn't as vibrant back then. It was sort of trial by fire and here's your desk and here's your computer and go for it, you know? Well, and it's an interesting thing too, because Dirks was, for me, was an interesting moment because we all saw it coming. There was this mm-hmm. moment where it was like, this is going to happen. And it was not one of those things where we were all pumping each other up like, dude, you should get in because it's going to happen. Right, it's right. Like, this is going to happen. Can we get, how much more can we get? Like how, how involved can we get? And we were all like, it when it was clear, you could see the team was there. It was Jason and me and Scott and you, and there were a handful of other people. Yeah. But it was very much, this was going to be a moment and everybody's going to, and you know, like this running around playing the ballrooms right, and selling them out well in advance and knowing that it was going and playing cut down arenas next. And the production was bigger than the rooms and it was, about making the show look as cool as possible because it was developing something and nobody was really worried about what we were or weren't making that night. Everybody was on the same Correct. team of what can we do to project this and make this happen as quick as possible. And it was the most clear cut. Nobody gave a fuck about the settlement that night about did we make this or did we make that? It was setting it up for the next play. Everybody that was involved right. Right. was setting it up for the next play. Right. And it was the most unique scenario because coming from a rock background where most rock managers want to get every penny out of a show, it was the first time I got to see into the country world a little bit because he's a very rock and country act, but he tours like a rock act, very much a pop country act. And at the same time, that was never about how much can we get out of these shows. It was always about how can we make sure the fans leave as happy as possible? Well, he's very ticket price sensitive and everything else. You know, back then there was a formula and there was a whole system of country venues a lot in the, you know, almost every major market had a country bar and your first single, if it was a big hit, you were five grand. Your second single might be 10 grand. Your third single might be 15 grand. And singles were hit number one a lot faster. They weren't spending 40 weeks on the chart. But he was the first guy that really didn't, it wasn't about chasing the easy money in some of those places. It was about playing the cool rooms and really the first guy that I worked with to go play, you know, rock rooms. Yeah, it was across everything. And it was funny because some of these venues that we played, I think, but see, now you don't even think of them as rock rooms anymore. They're just clubs. Right. That, you know. But we had to explain to them that this was going to be a country audience and things had to be run a little bit different because kids were coming and it was a very mainstream audience. And it was a ruckus rock crowd with kids and you had to have security like keeping that control over it because it had to be kids ha- couldn't feel like they were just social distortion show. Parents had to feel comfortable bringing their kids. Right, right. And having those rooms, because it basically is... A lot is, of parents go, and their kids go together to, right. to country but, shows. You yeah, know. these are the same rooms that maybe Megadeth played the night before. Right. You know, these are definitely the rock rooms that had that vibe. And this, now that Country X play those rooms now all the time. But yeah, you're right. With Dirks, it was a learning curve. These venues didn't know that. They didn't know how to handle that. The bar rang, though, so they got interested real quick. Right. Right. It's, you know, that's the thing about a lot of these, the, the, the country artists that do play bars and clubs it's the, the the alcohol sales are usually pretty damn good well and let's talk about that for a second there are a bunch of clubs around the country that have this billy bobs or grizzly rose kind of vibe where it's about getting them in and the line dance thing and selling the booze it's not nearly as much about who's on stage as it is about the vibe of the club and then there's the ballrooms where you go for the headliner sure. the capacities are pretty close to the same but whether you, what you're going for is completely different and making the decision of which you're playing financially can really affect your tour and your week. I have a hard time when people just lay, say, this is exactly what we're doing and we're not going to waver from. I think every market 
it's you need to look at individually because what works in Denver might not work in Charlotte. And you can usually typically go to those country rooms and make, you know, more money, but it, you may not be able to take all your production in that you want to take in. It's weird if you want to bring two openers in one of those scenarios that you could in a ballroom. It's just hard to fit everything in some of those places. But there's still some great country bars that have managed to be around 20 years later that I was booking, whether we're talking about Grizzly Rose or Coyote Joe's in Charlotte. Those places are Billy Bob's. They haven't, they're not going away. They're still you know, very vibrant and good options to play. All right, let's jump ahead a little bit. I, we could talk about Dirks all day long. It fascinates <laughs> me because still to see the rise of Dirks and the continued success of him, is one of the most amazing history lessons of the industry. I gotta be honest, it was really rewarding. And watching him sell out Bridgestone for the first time this year was, uh, you know, we all live vicariously through our clients when great things happen. And, and this that was one where I was just, just very proud of him and he's done it his way and is, is one of the nicest guys in this business. He's very approachable and you can talk to him and you can hang with him and he'll have a cocktail with you and he's totally he's down just, to earth. He is, when they say just like a, a, a real great guy, he is. I mean, he's a great father, he's a great husband. He's Our family spends some time together and it's just, he's an awesome dude. Let's talk about from going from Dirk's breaking cut down arenas into you developing the stadium X, which you've seen some success with after Dirks, Eric was the the next one I signed. Eric Church. And yeah. And you know, there were, there were other artists that didn't happen too. It wasn't like this was, you know, I was just that lucky three times in a row that we, we were signing other things too. I got to promote a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. The lucky bucks. Remember them? Yeah. We can talk yeah, about yeah. all blues. Let's, you know what? That'd be a fun interview. Let's not talk about Eric's success uh, yeah. in the stadiums. Let's go back and talk about the bands. Louie didn't buy the whole tour for. Oh no. Oh no. Yeah. You know, like Eric was after that and Eric just a lot like Dirks had this had in his mind. He knew exactly from day one what he wanted to be and where he wanted to go and what who his fans that he wanted to speak to were so he was he was a, a couple of years after dirks i think and then luke was about a, a couple of years after eric so i remember the first eric time was, had a first record out when luke got his deal the funny thing about luke getting finding out about him is henry glasscock who you guys used to the crystal pistol the crystal pistol we still like him by the way agent with me at wme henry he called me i was going to south by southwest and he said Man, you you need to leave Austin and come see this Dirk show I have in Albany at the theater. And I'm like, Henry, I don't how do you, I can you even fly to Albany, Georgia? And he's <laughs> like, You need to you really need to leave. You need to see this guy that's opening up, put on to open for Dirks. His name's Luke Bryan. And so he was like that that he said cat universals fire capital at the time is flying down here you gave up the biggest party of the year on I, henry glass I, I did i did i did can you believe that That's you know henry, right the, thing, the, the thing about the crystal pistol you got to take him seriously because he's right sometimes so i flew to i flew to albany and man the airport is like tiny and i, I think it was like a three flight connector got there I paid the dude at the Hertz counter just to drive me because there were no taxis or anything in Albany. I didn't want to rent a car. He drove me to the venue. You're still drunk from South by. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he drove me to the venue. And I remember Dirk's like looking at me like, what the hell are you doing here in Albany? Like, aren't you? He's, I think he even said like, aren't, you're supposed to be at, in Austin at South by, right? I was like, man, I, you know, I just come to check you out. And, uh, and I saw Luke that night and met him and his girlfriend at the time now wife was there and it was the first night i met carrie was at that show she was his publisher at the time 
And, you know, the, sure enough, all of the Capitol staff was down there and we had a big time. And, you know, that was I have very thankful that Henry convinced me to leave you guys in Austin and fly to Albany. You were with us that week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I seem to remember you yeah. canceling dinner that night. Now I know the other side of that story. All right. So let's talk about Eric for a second, because this was an interesting thing. Eric toured like a real rock act. Yeah. I don't think Eric knows he's in the genre of country because the way he's always toured was like a rock band and he's always acted as if he was a rock act yeah is that fair that's fair he carries himself as a performer at all points and he entertains from the second he walks in and i don't know that we've ever had a show with him where he didn't bring more production and more of a show than any other act i've ever seen play that venue before right i mean he's serious about providing a pretty amazing fan experience from just the, uh, yeah i don't the, think i've ever, ever heard anyone ever say that they didn't get their money's worth at an eric church show no and it's you Which know you this, be proud of. this last tour it was just a killer for him i mean he was playing you know two and a half three hours every night and one thing we learned if he's going to go out and do that again we, we need to put some more time between shows he was beat by the end of it but that's his thing is like he really from a fan point, everyone says they really super care about their fans, but I don't know of anyone that genuinely fights for them more than he does. There's really only two real national tour promoters when it comes to country. It's Louis Messina or it's BOC. Mm. And you've got one tour with one, you've got the other two with the other. Right. So you were in business with both of the Giants simultaneously mm-hmm. and constantly routing two of or three, or four, or five of the biggest tours on the road, your own traffic has to constantly be crossing the map on top of each other. Forget anyone else at the other agency or even in your office. You have to constantly be worried about what else you're doing in the same market within 10 days of each other. Yes. And one thing that I've learned when everyone's open and honest and communicating, because the old model was people would just protect their holds and you you wouldn't share routing until it was totally locked. Now we get to catch those mistakes at the beginning. And we're always looking and sharing routing, whether it's looking at Chesney versus Luke stuff. That, right, because it doesn't behoove them both to be in the same town. No, the same no. And, and it's, it doesn't do anybody any good to put shows on top of each other. And sometimes it's inevitable. And when that happens, there's a whole, you know, another marketing discussion that goes on. And usually both parties are seem to be happy if, if you can work it out but when you work in a vacuum it doesn't help anybody so we've gotten so much more communicative in our office among you know the the other guys that have arena headliners and are every day are you you know or can you move that hold for because i need this and it, it's a very collaborative environment for sure we call it promoter 101 but i want to jump into the master class here for a minute luke's playing stadiums now the writing's on the wall eric's going there dirk's probably going there like your roster is not done in the stadiums by any means you're going to be hosting those rooms for a while is there a formula where you look at building a stage in a baseball stadium or a football park and putting up the steel and paying for all that labor versus playing a shed that already has it where you're not having to deal with that that you try to figure out the math of where is this going to pay better at the end of the night for us? Well, with Luke, all the time, we, we look at that. I mean, that's one of the big factors. I mean, particularly for Luke, because BOC is Live Nation. They own those sheds. Right, right. So that and deal they, has got to be super incentive to play two nights versus playing one night and having to build the steel. It is. And that's I, we use that argument all the time. Like, let's not go stick your neck out too far when you know you can go sell out two amphitheaters. And, you know, maybe that's 40,000 tickets. And you're going to walk with a lot of money. Early on, I said to, to Luke, and was that you see a lot of those bands that sort of came up through 
the Live Nation Amphitheater system that were playing the same weekend every year in the same venue. And when that happens, I think you give people, you know, after a few years, even if they're the biggest fans, they think, well, whatever's going on in my life, I can take this year off and they'll be back next year. So I've tried really, really hard with Luke, especially because, you know, a lot of these bands are touring nonstop now. You know, country bands never take a break. Eric is kind of an exception there that he, you know, like next year for him is going to be just festivals. 19 will be another full-blown tour for him. You're so thinking he, that he far ahead cyclic. in your album cycles that you, you know to. 19 already where you're, what you're doing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you have to. And that one thing, I'll back up to, to what I was saying about Luke. So I try really hard not to have him play the same scenario in the same market year in and year out. So if we did play a stadium one year, we might go play the arena next year. It doesn't mean we're going to keep going back and playing the same stadium. So I really, I mean, I think from a fan experience, if you just, if you're mixing it up enough and arena production is going to be different than your amphitheater production, people are going to get bored if you just put it in the same place every year. You try to make it a different environment. Right. So is that when something like a Fenway or a Wrigley suddenly is like, that's a cool right. thing. We get to play Fenway. That's a cool thing. Let's go do that. Right. It's that's a how a lot of those night. conversations happen. And The Grateful Dead playing. Now you're speaking my language. Right. You know, we started with football with Luke because really, honestly, Jason Aldean was playing baseball stadiums and already sort of stuck his foot in first. So we consciously lean towards football, and this year we're doing a mixture of, or next year, I'm already into next year. It's a crazy how when you plan other people's lives eight months ahead, you just live in the future. Next year we're going to do uh, football and baseball with Luke, a combination. You're talking about the stadiums. Uh, obviously, you're not talking about the sport itself, but where those games are played. And those, the size of those are obviously insane, but putting up that steel is a real factor. And We try to share where we can. I mean, that's one thing Brian is really is, is good at, right, is good at going out and through, and especially in the Live Nation ecosystem. They're constantly looking for opportunities to share steel and piggyback, whether it's Which everybody wins or, at that right, point. Right, the fans sure, you, wins, you, have, you have your expenses, down. yeah. Let's talk about the concept of tour promoters versus promoters. As an agent... You lose a little bit of control when you sell a tour off to Louie or to Brian, where you've taken the money now, you have to give them the opportunity to make it up however right. they need to. They have to go make that money back for you, but now you kind of have to give them some leeway to do that. Whereas when you sell date by date, you get to make every decision based on what you personally, you, the manager, and the act all want to do. Well, even when we, even when it's a tour deal, nothing really happens without us and the managers agreeing that that's the right play or the right time to play it or, or whatever. You know, the advantage, especially with like Brian, is the you've got the amphitheaters and they're the only people that have the amphitheater network. And Brian and Lou are both, you know, great promoters too. It's never my goal when we, when we start working with somebody that, hey, I just, we need to go find a tour promoter. But naturally, as people go through and they're, you know, see Brian has a great farm system because he's got so many tours and the and even the and ability the, to work the, with the clubs. Right, right. I mean, there's House of Blues clubs everywhere. If Brian wants to develop a club act from the ground up, he can do that. Right. Yeah. They're, I mean, they're just totally different on where they sort of enter artist careers. If we're talking about, you know, the two big guys. How involved are they in helping with support when they buy a tour? Is that still all in-house or did those guys get to come to the table? Very much involved. You know, it depends on the tour and depends on the artist. But like for Luke, it's a conversation that Brian, Kerry and, and I are having, you know, right now in real for next year, first to three. 
we've got to figure that out in the next week. And you know, I guess in that particular case, BOC is on the road. He has his own bus. Like he has a relationship with Luke directly. So things probably get discussed where it's like we talked about this, and then you and Carrie are filled in after the fact because they were at a show hanging out together. Yes, not necessarily yeah, made he's, decisions, he's very, but they were talking directly. Yes, he's really good about keeping everybody in the loop when that happens. Because you know, Luke will talk, walk in with his shirt off after a workout sweating like crazy and and want to talk business for pop down and want to talk business for an hour mm-hmm. you know luke's really involved in the venue plays in the market he's in the loop and approves them you know so he's we're not gonna go p- throw a stadium up and him not say i definitely want to do a stadium in that market really mm-hmm. so and there's some artists that get it and there's some artists the that last don't. thing you want as an agent or a promoter or a manager is to have your artist stand on stage in a stadium show wondering what the fuck he's doing there that seems like a very realistic like insight to to know. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder if you may have gotten that question. After no, 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 we haven't because we because those are you know he's this if it's a stadium he's signing off on it because it's risky. Like you said, it's so expensive that you don't want to miss when you go out and play stadiums. Yeah, you don't hear about that very often. Like pressure is so on to put up the steel when you do it. It's very rare that that happens. It's funny. I was with the Scorpions the other night in Spokane and they had only played the market like once before, which was Monsters of Rock, which was a stadium tour with Van Halen. We're talking the 80s, but the show in Spokane (laughs) had lost so much money in the stadium that they have skipped over Spokane for 35 years or something ever since. So when I routed in Spokane on a Friday night, they were like, are you sure? I'm like, you guys haven't been there forever. Where'd you play it? We played the Spokane Arena. Wow. It, It... they bonused. It made oh, sense. Yeah. At the end of the night, Klaus was just like, Spokane. Yeah. <laughs> and putting up stadium shows back then were a whole lot harder. Now they've been streamlined. Right, right. People know how to do it. Back then, you were building them locally, trying to like piece together stages and sound systems. Like Nobody had stadium sound systems. It's like, the Clear Brothers must have 40 of these things now. Well, I mean, you saw the Beatles documentary where they're out playing stadiums and they're playing through the, 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 the PA. PA. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, it's crazy. You could take this production that we have now back to some of those bands you back in the day. It would be incredible. It would be incredible. I mean, even the early, late 80s tours with the Stones doing Steel Wheels mm-hmm. or the Grateful Dead like doing some random stadiums and you instead of their multiples they'll just single nights in some of the markets or you look at some of the other scenarios with bands like Pink Floyd doing stadiums mm-hmm. and they carried production but they were still having to piece those things together when michael cole was figuring out how to do massive scale touring productions with 65 semis with u2 on the pop mart or zoo tv they were just figuring it out like what it's become now is amazing like how simplified it's come with netting don't even put up the roofs anymore it's like it gets in the way of the video right they'll play through the rain what cole played two years ago changed the game completely Mm mm-hmm You've got all these bands that are just putting a bunch of cranes across the back, hanging the video screen, no roof, Mm -hmm. and just huge, massive stages with massive video. Yeah, I mean, that's changed, obviously, a lot of the the experience that you can play a stadium. And, you know, with me, it's like, I always think, like, it's it's really a great fan experience to be in a stadium environment, seeing your favorite band. That's where production comes in. It can pull the person in the very back of the top row in the back of the building and pull them closer by great video. And they feel more connected. So, and your acts, your big acts, have really utilized that well. 
Yeah, like, Dirks has got a great they, video system. Eric's got a great video thing. Luke's show is serious. Like those guys, it's just something you didn't have to think about twenty years ago because there wasn't video or an, you know a video right. technician. But just it was like so exotic LDs to take video. Road. It was so exotic to take video out fifteen years. We were like, "Are you? You're crazy. That's so expensive." Now you know it's once somebody gets to a theater level almost they're they're wanting right and then you get into, you get into the mini th- uh, arenas and you have to have the thrust and right like there are certain things that just come along with playing this level now mm-hmm. let's talk about platinum ticketing Ticketmaster platinum the vip competing with the scalpers putting the money back into the artist pocket which i'm sure you're in favor of opposed to the random scalper picking sure. up on the secondary is this something that your artists are utilizing? Some are. The ticketing could be a four-hour conversation, really. And there, there are people that know a lot more about it than I do. But, you know, I've, I try to learn every day. And the one thing that I, I my takeaway is that there's so many different systems and there's so many ways for tickets to get out that it's so hard to control. You know, it's a full-time job for somebody in Eric's office to go through and, and scrub the list. Can you define that? Well, I, I know you what look you mean, at, but I want... Well, you know, you're, you could go through and look at the ticket purchases and any that, you know, maybe from the same zip code. Scalpers are great at figuring out ways around the system. So they may have five different credit cards issued with a different middle initial and that may get through initial you know the first layer but they'll, they'll go through and manually look at the list and say hey these five purchases look fishy to me they're all from or alabama why, and the show happens to be right right there, there was uh so you're you're talking about looking for scalpers when you're talking about scrubbing the list you're looking for people that are like doing going for resale yeah, fielding saw you know 40 or 50 tickets in omaha sold for an eric church show and the southeast it's a continual effort to go through and now, do you have the right to cancel any ticket you yes, want yes yes you do you can just cancel that and rare, ticket? you know there are very super rare exceptions where you know when you cancel somebody's tickets it shouldn't have been canceled you'll hear somebody's traveling to you'll see hear sh- about it well and if somebody's traveling to see a show like they're going to go on vacation to go see a show or they're a college kid they'll get in touch with us and they'll be they'll tickets will be back like okay that. so if, 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 it's it happens, if it happens by mistake yes you guys will make fair. it right yeah absolutely for sure because you last thing you want to do is a fan that's willing to travel, travel and see yeah, and piss them off yeah, yeah. right because those those are hardcore fans my takeaway is that whatever the method is to you know make the transaction direct with the fan but still put more money in the artist's pocket and keeping it in that ecosystem is a win-win, I think. I mean, part of it is people, they're willing to pay more for tickets. I assume they probably all do, but do you actually do a VIP program? Some do, yes. Okay, and then Verified Fan, is that is that something coming to the country world sooner than later? You know, that started, that started with Eric. I don't know if you know knew that, but it started with, they didn't quite have it all ready for his last tour, but that's why that, that started being built out. The have you guys found thing. that to be something that's really helpful in making sure the right people get the right tickets? You know, I think the Taylor thing was, it seemed to have worked, but it was over the top, I think, on some of the things you had to do to become a verified fan. We're talking about Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that was the first big rollout on a massive yeah. tour. But. And, and the platform, I'm sure, was different by the time it got to her. Well, let's take and, Masters figuring out but, the technology. It's, it's definitely improving as they go. Right. But you're seeing more of this. Lincoln Park rolled it out, and obviously Pink just did it this weekend. But it seems like we're seeing a given that the big acts are going to adopt this. Yes. You know, I think it has to be. You have to know that if you can figure out who you're selling your ticket to, that's a great thing for the artist, as opposed to just letting tickets slip out and end up wherever they end up. Country has changed from being country and Western 
very much in that blue you know i think of the blues brothers scene we got both yeah. kinds of music <laughs> country, country and, and western. western to being a real pop show i yeah. mean when you look at the top 20 polestar two ring acts usually it's dominated by 60 or 70 percent country you guys have developed an industry upon the entire industry that is pop country music it's not just a straightforward fiddle guy playing, you know, with band. It is a real show. I've said that when I first moved here, it was pretty much when I was talking about, you know, things just being a little bit tighter in terms of playlists and everything else. But it was very much pretty similar kind of artists doing the same similar kind of tour. I used to say it's crazy to me that Eric Church and Rascal Flatts are in the same genre. They're, you know, they're musically, they're so different. And that's even broader now when you throw in Stapleton and... And the great thing I think about the format is that it is so broad and there's, you know, when people say, I don't, I don't really like country music. I'm like, well, you, you haven't really done enough research because there's something for everybody to like, I think, in, in the space. There are no rules when it comes to touring and you have to do it this way. So to me, it's, it's been great to watch it broaden so much. Can we talk about that for a minute? Because country has taken a new pivot with some of the newer stars being a little bit more rebel-esque mm -hmm. and you look at guys like Sturgill Simpson mm. and Chris Stapleton and there's a little bit of a badass side to these guys that they're cool and they're hip and they are rock and roll they are more rock and roll than a lot of rock and roll bands are now and Chris is headlining arenas but and it happened in an just amazing across the moment. street here in a couple hours you had an amazing moment I don't know that we've ever been able to pin spot a moment where an act went from about to happen to superstar as quickly as Chris Stapleton with Justin Timberlake. Right. Like, that's got to be the most... You, you hope for those things. You wish for them. The last, what, two years of that ride has got to be the most insane thing, that that moment sparked something. And he was going to happen as an artist one way or another. He I was, was already I coming. was sure of that. I mean, you know... But that moment... I'd been rocket jet fuel packed that to the next level. Like we haven't seen in this industry. Everybody in the room that night knew it. I mean, we went backstage right after, right as that beat him in, you know, into the dressing room and they both walked in and everybody there knew like that something big was about to happen. We were playing El Rey in LA and the ticket, it wasn't quite sold out and it sold out during the performance. Well, he was still like, on was stage. Still, I was still on stage. And then I went out for that show and I think our ticket price was like 25 bucks or something. People were scalping them for $200 out front in the street. And, you, you know, so I was positive. Just, you know, Stapleton's one of those guys that there's, it's, it's wrong if he doesn't end up being hurt because he's so talented. And it's, uh, I, I feel but like. But you can't plan feel, for that. You can't even hope for that, that you're going to have the opportunity to have been on national TV and have somebody like Timberlake right. say, yes, I'm going to do this. They met before. There was sort of an organic thing with those guys and they were uh, there was a mutual respect for sure or i don't think he wouldn't have done it i don't think he chris was the reason he did the, the but you race. couldn't have planned that from scratch and and, and developed that there had to be an organic right, piece right and luck and as good as he is and he had to be good for it to have worked because you give an artist that moment and if they don't have the magic mm -hmm. the crowd isn't going to care right i mean there were a ton of performers that night that also did really amazing performances they just weren't that good right like that was the not only the performance of the night, I don't know if there's a better award show like performance in the last five or six years because that's the one everybody talks about. Well, and you hear other people saying too, well, they, they just need their Stapleton moment. You know, that's what that's, they're calling it now. It's a thing. And it's, if, if you could, if it was that easy to create those moments, everybody would do it. It was just, it was a special thing. And Chris is one of the most talented singers 
and and riders that that I've ever been around, and that was really great to to see that. I mean, that happened overnight. Yeah, I mean, it really did. Is there a different moment when you're going from being an arena agent, which is as far as our business concerned, you really don't get much bigger than being an arena agent, but then when you start cutting at stadium deals, where do you go as an agent? to get mentored on how to cut those deals correctly. And you're at the biggest agency in the world. So there's obviously mentors there that can help. You know, I learn a lot. And I think anybody who's around guys like Corin and don't try to absorb, I learned very early on that, that listen, he's been on the touring side. He's a, he's a manager that's supremely focused on touring, whether it was Dave Matthews or Fish. He knows what he's doing. Early on, decided I was going to ask him questions when I needed to, and I just learned a lot from dealing with him on, on those shows. And there's a lot of factors that go when we actually decide to pull the trigger on a stadium. And roughly, a lot of the expenses tend to come in about the same spot. So if we find somebody to share, we'll, you know, we'll have that. But as far as like cutting those deals, that's... You're talking about shearing. You're talking about like... Yeah, shearing steel. Searing the steel night after night, right? Well, no, but if you can figure out like to play Wrigley the same week Pearl Jam is going to do it. Correct. That you split the cost of what is a massive bill. Right. Like, so the, yeah, the synergy you know, in that is huge. Well, and, and honestly, the promoters are getting way better about looking for those opportunities. I don't think of myself as an arena agent or a stadium agent or whatever. I think the rest I still, of the world does. I know. I, I mean, I still, I get just as excited about working with new bands that are starting to sell out clubs for the first time. That's Wheeler that's, Walker Jr., baby. <laughs> right, right. And you're on the team, uh, right? He's, he's yeah. your guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good old Wheeler. That is a show. It's fun. He played Faster Horses Festival this summer. And at midnight, it was kind of an experiment Brian did after the main stage ended. And it was really cool to see Dirks and Party and Cole all side stage watching Ben. Nice. That's a great live show. Like if, if there's an album, you, you got to have a personality and a yeah. sense of humor to enjoy it. Exactly. Because if you can't laugh at yourself and you can't laugh at what he's doing and you take it too seriously, you're going to be offended. But it, that is a show that is like Weird Al meets country meets Leonard Skinner ready to rock your ass Yeah, off. I mean, I think it does offend some people and that's that's okay. But it's one of the funniest things around, you know. You got to be able to take yourself like a little light, lighthearted to enjoy that show. Yeah. But like that shit's funny. Well, I, tell, I would tell people it's like, you know, it's just the, the musically, it's pretty damn good too. So if you didn't speak English and you just, and you listen to it, you'd think, God, this is some fantastic country music. But if you do speak our language, then you might be offended. Speaking of that, country has made their money in North America. Canada has been big in it. Mm -hmm. U.S. has been big. But now internationally, it's starting to happen. You're seeing country to country has really helped internationally. But are your artists now looking at a global picture opposed to just touring the U.S. nonstop? It was, I mean, you know, you're all your passports, right? That's ten, a new thing. Right, right. Ten years ago, it was, you know, maybe you might go to London, maybe Ireland. Just to cover press. Yeah, just to cover press and see if you could start something over there. But bands that, that really commit to it, the Cadillac 3 is a great example of a band that's you know, I think last year that was they went over four or five times. And whether it was just to do press or do an award show, but they've really built it up over there and they're selling two to three thousand tickets in the UK. Do you consider them a country act? I mean, they're almost a yeah, dirty I rock mean, they, band. It, it's it's it, yeah, they can't. That's what I'm talking about. They're they they're they consider themselves the line a country, really good. Yeah, but they consider themselves a country act, and radio considers them a country act when they play them. But that was one of the earliest bands I signed, and they were a band called Bang 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 back then. If you remember, they were Llama and then Bang, 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 then American Bang, Cadillac Black, and now the Cadillac 3. So more band name changes than anybody that I've worked with. 
but they're great guys. They've, you know, been best friends since they were in high school and they remain best friends and are so fun to be around and their show's freaking awesome. I mean, yeah, they're live, great, they're live show. There's too many, there's not too many bands that can right, bring it three like people they that can make that much noise. And there's a good team behind them now. I mean, it's triple eight and it's you yeah. and there's something there. Yeah. I Real mean, the label. thing is with them is, you know, just getting creative packaging ideas. Is that going to happen? Cause I, when I see them, I think God, they're they're They can be an arena act. Cause you know, it's just, and Jaron's a phenomenal songwriter. You know, he's getting cuts, for, but they could tour with like Queens of the stone age. Like yeah. they, they rock hard enough that that would work. Yeah. Well, right now, I mean the, the, they are, it is a country thing now. So, you know, Dirks has had them out. We're working on putting them on a tour next year. And if not, we'll, we'll package creatively and go, go play clubs because they love to tour i mean they're they're a touring band they've been touring for 15 years how much of that is your job is figuring out the package a lot of it it's one of the toughest parts of what we do i think is making sure that that you're paying fairly for something you're not overpaying that it fits creatively and artistically and that the people that everybody out in the tour if you're if you're talking about a whole year are actually going to get along yeah because they're basically living with these people right, for a right. year you don't want one wet blanket to bring to bring a tour down but that yeah and it's tough you know every year there's one or two sort of direct support people in country that everybody wants and the second one person makes an offer then it becomes a bidding war or whatever but yeah it's it's tough but i think it's it's so key to what we do because if you really have a great you know package that's your people are going to get there early they're going to talk about it it's just uh, it's super key to what we do jay of all of the agents in the business You've got one of the least ego guys out there. You're so down to earth. Is there any advice you can give to guys getting into the business that are listening that you would say is the most important thing that they could do to make sure they have a long-term career? Just don't be a dick. You know, I, I enjoy people. I enjoy being around people. I enjoy, I'm a very, as you know, pretty social creature. And I, I wasn't, my parents didn't raise me that way. I was raised to treat people with respect. And, you know, you see this a lot. Like, I think we place too much importance on ourselves sometimes in in this business whether it's you know labels or managers or whatever and we are fortunate to get to do what we do for a living and to be around such creative people and to you know be like peter pan and never really grow up <laughs> so i feel super lucky that i ended up in a career that lets me you know be around music and be around creative types and you know i just i don't understand when people sometimes do what they do and, and act the way they act so if i was talking to somebody young it's just like don't put yourself and this is very old wise film agent at william morris told me don't ever put yourself between the artist and the spotlight <laughs> so you know that i've I, that's always kind of resonating in my head and I, I try to to you know keep a pretty low profile and i just you know it's it's fun to me this is fun to do what we get to do it's harder you know as you get older with two kids at home and trying to coordinate travel and not missing soccer games and things like that but it's i really really enjoy it jay williams thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us thanks dan awesome jay is in a league of his own an amazing ear for talent and he's on a great run. Couldn't happen to a better guy. I'm Dave Geller, right here on Promoter 101 Podcast with Dan Steiny Steinberg. Who am I? I guess I'm the manager of Thievery Corporation Emeritus. Steiny, it's the time of the podcast. We got to jump into some of the tweets of the past week. Humor me. Explain what was going on in your mind when you wrote each of these Promoter 101 tweets. Start with this one. That moment when an agent you've known for years confirms that first show with you, CC John Bongiorno. 
The social circle is huge on this side of the industry. So you can know someone for years before you finally get a chance to work with each other until you finally get that exciting first call. This week it happened from John, and I'm hoping it's the first of many. When your weekend goals is simply catching up before Monday comes. And the pace of the business is crushing right now. Nights, weekends, shit. I'm dreaming about work right now, too. It's just overwhelming the amount of traffic out there, Luke. Pretty insane. Very much the same ways. I'm looking down the barrel of probably maybe three or four days off between now and Christmas. I mean, it's just that kind of crazy busy. I'm going to go to great lengths to avoid being the subject of tweets of the week. That's in quotes. This one just came in moments ago from an email. Hashtag too funny. Thanks for making me smile on this one. Name withheld CAA agent. When you first learn who support is on a tour when their agent emails you the contract. You gotta love the communication in our business sometimes, or, or the lack thereof. When you piss off an agent by telling them the truth. I should have known better than this one. That does it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. Be sure to keep up with Dan on Twitter. He's incredibly funny. He's at the Jew. And if you have your own Promoter 101 thoughts, feel free to tweet them at us. Again, the show is at Promoters 101. Or you can email them over at steiny at promoter101.net. Anything that makes us laugh is going to get used on the air. Hi, this is Jake Sofnarowski from Rocks Off, New York City's sweetest independent concert promoter. And you're listening to Promoter 101. It's time for someone to turn the tables. This week, we're going to be joined by Billions Corp, Adam Voith, who drops by to turn the tables on us. Promoter 101, after uh, we do the interviews, we always love to give the chance to turn the tables and give you a chance to come back at us. So, Adam Boyd, what do you got for me? My question is, are there things about working with the very few independent agencies left that you as a promoter miss out on when you're not doing that? Well, I feel like we do work with the independent agencies. I mean, we do a ton of business with Bobby, uh, Cud. Not to say that you're not, but I'm saying, is there something about it? Is there something we as an independent agency do that is appealing to promoters. You know, we're trying to be independent on purpose. So I guess we just want to know coming from the other side of the table if it's working. No, it's a relationship business. It's like you talk about, is it AEG or is it Live Nation? And it's not. You're talking about, is it Adam Weiser or is it Paul Tillett? Sure. Is it Son Striegel? It's always about the guy and the personality. So I don't think, am I buying this from CAA or am I buying this from UTA or APA? I think I'm buying this from Andy Summers or I'm buying this from Stormy Shepard or I'm buying it from Bobby Cudd. It's just the relationship. And I don't care where your desk is. I'm talking to somebody else on the other side of the phone and I'm sending another email. So it doesn't really matter. It's more the guy that we're dealing with and that personality. And we do a lot of business in the way we promote with the same people over and over again. So when I used to book clubs, I used to work with everybody. I could work with every single agency and talk to every agent. And that used to be my goal to try and get at least one show from every agent that I cared about in the course of a year. And that would be 60 shows within itself. Right. And now... I can do 90 shows with one act. Right. You know, the touring model is different. So I don't have the ability to do shows with every agent, but we certainly work with every agency. And at the same time, with all the people I'd like to work with, I'm hoping over the course of three or four years that we do get to do a show together. And like, because I don't need the whole tour, I'll buy a single date. But I realize that I'm less limited to have the opportunity to work with every agent because I'm not focused on filling one room or one market. I'm focused on routing tours and continually balancing that. So I, I don't have that opportunity as much. But I love the independent agencies because I'm dealing with entrepreneurs and I'm an entrepreneur. So the guys that truly have skin in the game and are trying to build 
opposed to a line agent who is just trying to get it off their desk right is really advantageous to me so i really prefer the guy who wants to have a 10 minute conversation with me about each venue and why i think one play is better than the other even though they're gonna make less money at the other play right versus the guy that just wants to get it off his desk because he doesn't have the act he just has to book it that annoys the crap out of me it's like let's talk about this he's like no we're gonna play that room that room's it's more money it's like it's the wrong look yeah i don't care let's go yeah let's talk about the right play let's talk i, I want that guy those are the guys I do best with. And I don't care if they're at a major agency or at an indie. I want the guy that wants to talk about developing the act. Because if we play the right room for the right ticket price to the right fan, we're going to build that act quicker. Sure. Those are the guys. Got it. Does that answer? Yeah, it does. It's Just want to make sure there's still room for these, for our three independents out there. <laughs> you know? I wish there were more indies because, you know, the gobbling up lately of all of the promoters getting bought out and all the agencies getting bought out, it's a little weird. It's very intense. But, you know, it's like people doing it differently and alternatively creates cooler new vibes. And just like Gentlemen of the Road, this concept of doing something outside the box can work. We want to thank Adam for joining us on this version of Turn the Tables on Promoter 101. If you'd like to be asking us the questions, please shoot us an email at steiny at promoter101.net. It's John Finberg from First Row Talent, and I'm on Promoter 101. And we've got another great interview from UTA's head of marketing, Eddie Clemens. He's here with us today to talk about how he rolled out that Guns N' Roses reunion tour and so much more. Welcome to the podcast, Eddie. Promoter 101, we're at the Plaza in New York, and I'm joined by an old friend, Eddie Clemens is with us. Welcome. Thanks, Dan. Good to see you. Now that this has actually been a role that's expanded out, has been something that has made sure that assets are actually current and that we're getting responses from publicists. You guys can be a conduit to getting management to actually take an interview request seriously when a show's not selling. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of differences over time. The, the role has evolved. You know, a lot of major agencies have it now or have had it for a while and it's continuing to evolve with the way marketing has evolved in the business and generally. It's giving a lot of the control of the marketing back to the artists in a sense, having additional eyes and additional expertise in the specific marketing role. You get one file and then push it out or a photo and a logo and you'd have a promoter create an ad mat and you'd have 15 different ad mats in theory across the country from what somebody created locally and now being able to provide a tour poster, a promoter, editable poster, social images, all of that type of stuff. And that's just on the artwork side, radio spots, TV spots, web videos, all of those different aspects are most of that stuff's coming through my office. Now you've got stadium tours out now and you've got club tours. You run the gamut. It's easy to know and understand when Muse or Guns N' Roses is going out, why you want to see a marketing plan. It's easy to understand when even a Danzig tour is going out, you want to see a marketing plan. But when a baby band is playing a 200-seat club and I'm getting a request for a marketing plan, is there really a need for that? I think it absolutely is a need for it because in my experience, especially over the past 12, 13 years that I've been doing this, the job and the role and the business and the industry and just society has changed so drastically from the first marketing plans I was working on was print ad, print ad, print ad, maybe radio, maybe TV if you were working on it. But now the aspect of it is so much digital and social. A promoter like you has Facebook advertiser access to an artist page and you're not just running on your fans. It's just because you have 100,000 followers on your socials doesn't mean that any of them are the artist's fans. But when you can target 10,000 fans in a market of the artist, it's much more focused. And we have so much data now. I'm not sure that everyone even realizes that 
we're being granted every day more and more access to data between Pandora, Spotify, socials, bands in town, song kick, so that we can see who the actual fans are in a specific market and say, hey, in Milwaukee, focus on Pandora and Facebook because we know that that's where our fans are. But for the same artist in San Diego, go to Spotify and Twitter because that's where the fans are. So I think it's just important to be able to see your marketing plan, see where you're spending money and help advise you on best practices to make your job easier and spend your money more effectively. Okay, so if there's a $500 ad budget, you want to see how that's being broken out because you want to maximize the dollar and it may be more important to maximize $500 than on a Guns N' Roses tour where if there's a mistake made, there's enough money in the budget where you could possibly place the dollar in the wrong place and still be okay. Absolutely. Okay, but in general, you know where that money is being spent now. It's probably an ad mat and socials and maybe a little ground. Well, if yeah. you're working with UTA, you're not paying for ad mats. Is that a universal thing now? You guys... we For the past two years, we've had an in-house graphic designer. I felt it was very important for the promoters to spend the money, especially when $125 or $65 on a club show. Money is much better spent marketing the show on socials. $50, $60 on Facebook goes a lot further than you having to buy an ad mat and then localize it. If you get a marketing letter from me or someone in my office, you are getting a promoter poster, a web optimized social images. Now we're doing carousel ads or for Instagram, really focused on that graphic side of things to make your lives easier and keep the control of all the creative in the artist's hands. That's an interesting thing. Over the last couple of years, you've seen some bigger tours. What's the difference in the preparation when you're breaking something like a Guns N' Roses tour in the stadium compared to breaking a theater tour? The toughest part with the Guns N' Roses tour was keeping it under wraps. You know, it was a really great secret and then it really wasn't, but that's because I think so many people cared. But I think it's just strategizing a lot of what we're doing and making sure that we're maximizing you know, different opportunities in the market, being aware of what else is in the market, where we're going, when we're going, that type of thing. I don't think you have to be as careful on the smaller stuff because there's just so much traffic and so much more of similar things happening. But as you get larger, I think you need to be a lot more conscious of what else is happening, what else is you know, playing off, but also what else is announcing at the same time. Do you have a counterpart in London and in Canada and some of the other offices? Not internationally, no, but there are two women in the LA office that are doing what um, we're doing too. So we speak regularly. And then we have interaction with our digital division, digital strategy, and there's colleagues in uh, New York, LA, Nashville, and Toronto. So there's a lot of crossover there. They're not... It's so much involved in the tour marketing side, but they're in the digital strategy. So there's a little bit of crossover helping us you know, come up with different plans, looking at data and um, trends. And they're a little bit more in tune regularly with changes at Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat. And then they'll advise us so that we can help you know, roll that out to our clients, to the promoters. And a lot of what we're doing is advising on best practices and you know, when Facebook changes the way they're going to do this or that to be able to make that change. Or like I was saying with the Instagram carousel ads, as soon as that rolls out to be able to talk internally and see, okay, how can we best use this feature to help our tours and sell tickets? Now on the other side, are you helping manage the band's social media presence? No, we're not. None of that. 
will advise a bit on different messaging or copy or timing on when they should be posting about the tour. But in terms of actually managing the pages, no, we're not doing any of that. It's generally run either in-house by an outside third-party social media company or the labels are doing a lot of that. So your principal interest is making sure tickets sell? Yes. That's such a beautiful thing. I don't know why we were all such against this at the beginning. And we were as an industry. I think we all like, fuck off, dude. We know what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, when I first came over to the agency rep at the time and over my time with um, UTA, I had a bunch of you know people that in the beginning were, I don't need a babysitter. I've been promoting tours for 20 years. I'm like, I'm not here to babysit. I might have been one of those people. You very well could have been one of those people. I think you might have been one of those people. You know, I think there was a bit of people needing to figure out who I was first and foremost, because at the time the agency group didn't have someone. And then I came in and showed up and all of a sudden it was, hey, make sure Eddie sees your marketing plans. Then people like yourself were like, well, who's this guy? I don't what are you talking about? And the babysitting aspect of it was never that. It was, you know, you are an expert at your market. You're an expert at promoting shows, but we are an expert at our artists and our clients. And we can tell you more of what this new sound they're going for is, or when they're going to have things happening with, you know, appearances or releases or, you know, sinks or commercials or any sort of happenings in the artist's world and basically you know giving you the ammunition to go do your job better you know it seems like there's an argument for the guy in the local market knows the market better than anyone else and as a national promoter i have the ability to fine-tune the marketing on an artist and figure out what works and do some trial and error and over the course of tours or many tours realizing exactly what sells best for an artist in any market because that's the things that hit on them best. NPR, a little bit of TV, what have you. Figuring out the right combination over time. You guys have the same ability because you're working with the artist over and over and over again. And in some cases, we're only doing one or two nights. So when you say, buy these keywords, I don't second guess that anymore. I realize that when the local promoter that we're co-promoting with pushes back, there's a reason I'm telling them to buy cable. When you tell me to buy these keywords on Google, I realize there's a reason for it or on Facebook or any, wherever it is. And that's, that's a great point because like you said, you may have two or three shows. A lot of our tours, especially in the club and theater world, yes, we'll sell, you know, 20 dates to Live Nation or to AEG. And kind of, yeah, stop doing that. In, in terms of a tour deal, but we still need to get from point A to point B. Live Nation doesn't have a room in every market. AEG doesn't have a room in every market. The bands have fans in most likely every market. And when we're selling our tours to 40 dates to, you know, sometimes 35 different promoters or sometimes 40 dates to 20 different promoters, at that point, I have the benefit, which I think is a great resource for someone like you, that I can say, hey, your show is not selling so great in Cleveland. This is what they're doing in Milwaukee, and it's crushing. Or I can see these three markets are doing really well. How come the rest of the tour isn't doing well and I can really dissect what they're doing and look at the artist socials and their streams and all of that type of stuff and then come back and re-strategize everything with everyone else. So it's not just always everything's working well because I'm sure you've heard that. All the shows are great except for yours. Yeah. Could be there's three shows that are great that everything else is wrong but there was something that wasn't being hit. And lots of times we're finding stuff, little things here and little things there. And I'm happy to hear, hey, when we're going to Billings or Yakima or some of these obscure markets, yeah, I'm sure print still makes sense. But if we're in New York City, I live here, I live in Jersey, you're not buying print. It's not necessary to buy print here. 
I always buy print when I, I do New York, the Time Out or Village Voice. And we stopped doing it because nobody even reads it anymore. But everybody used to pick it up. I used to love to run either a sold-out show ad anyway or a just a show ad that we were doing a show at Town Hall or something because I thought it was great advertising for the company. So I'd run it. And it was kind of funny because I got a trouble a couple times from the house marketing people at the agencies because they'd get the ad back to them. like, we're not paying for this. I'm like, it's not in my ad plan. Nobody asked you to. But there was something about flipping through the LA Weekly when I would go to LA and see, and I'm talking early 90s, to see all of the thank you sold out ads that Golden Voice would run with the big sold out cross against it, you know, for Iggy Pop or at the Palladium or what have you. It was like, those were cool. Sold out thank you ads are the coolest thing in my head. And it's gone away with prints. And you don't really do that online because it's pointless. No, absolutely. I mean, we'll see at certain times it's more, I think, switched to outdoor a bit more like here in New York, we'll see lots of times um, I've done it and comboed up with labels with sold out snipes around here or digital billboards with sold out. Like I think I saw you two was here a couple weeks ago and they had sold out digital billboards running. And I think that's a really nice vanity thing, especially people when they come to New York, this generally spend some time here. So to be able to walk around and see snipes or billboards or, you know, subway, the tops of the subway uh, video boards and stuff. I think that's a, a cool vanity thing. But I always like the vanity thing when you have the money for it and everyone's making money and can spend it. But otherwise, we want to spend all the money to make sure that we're selling all the tickets. So you're over, I don't know, 500 to 1,000 bands, something like that, on your roster in America, right? So give yeah. or take. Yeah, give or take. Okay, so at any given point, 30% of them are working. How many people are on your team that are overseeing 150 bands on the road at any given moment? So we generally, the tour marketing department has a threshold of thousand cap touring artists or larger. Special cases with bands that are about to happen or have a real team and we can kind of see what's about to happen will make a little bit of a exception to the rule, but generally it's thousand cap or larger. And a lot of our tours, we have five bands on a bill, four of which are ours. But we're only really dealing primarily with the headliner, and that's the main aspect of it. So the support acts that are also our clients are getting the benefit of us, but maybe not the day-to-day interaction of dealing with seeing marketing plans and all of those types of things. But for the most part, we have general thousand cap or larger touring threshold that we work on. And there's three, I would call tour marketing executives. We all have assistants and then we have our graphic designer here in New York. Okay. And the average tour is what, like 25 dates, give or take? Give or take. Yeah. And it's not necessarily tours. It could be a one-off. It could be routing dates through festivals. I know a lot of the work in the spring and the fall is routing around the Danny Wimmer festivals. Which don't route perfectly. Right, exactly. But being able to, you know, work on some of that or, you know, a good one-off or, you know, certain different things like that. But yeah, primarily tours, but we're called tour marketing, but it's generally, you know, helping out with the show marketing in general. When an act's playing a festival that you guys have, do you guys get involved with that as well? Rarely. I mean, the festivals are pretty self-contained. There's not much for me to do in marketing. I'll liaise a lot, make sure that they have proper contact info for social media managers and publicist contacts, press photos, logos, bios, all the, the relevant tools that they need. But for the most part, it's just kind of making sure that the promoter, the festival promoter and their marketing team has everything that they need on their end. But we're not getting into the nitty gritty of advising on marketing plans or anything like that because it's pretty self-contained at that point. Let's talk about the promoters. What are the things that promoters do that cause trouble that if they only listened that they, their shows would sell better or if they communicated? Like, What are the things that promoters do that drive you nuts? The things that drive me nuts specifically are the people that tell me that they've been doing it for 20 years and know how to do their job and they don't need me there to babysit. 
that drives me nuts because you're an expert on your market. You're an expert on being a promoter. I'm an expert on our clients. In my mind, I feel as if the live business has shifted to a volume-based business. It's more and more bookings and less and less for the vast majority of actually rolling up your sleeves and marketing and promoting in the market and leaning back on the artist more. Thing that drives me nuts is when I reach out and say, hey, your show is off. Here's a couple of ideas. You know, what's happening in the market? What else is going on? What are we missing? What is not going on? And the response is, we need the artist to tweet more. We need sound check party passes. We need meet and greets. We need, you know, all of this stuff from the artist. It's like, well, I've given you a bunch of content most of the time. You know, there's certain artists that you just won't get it. But I feel as if, you know, our team is really good at helping and getting content, getting live photos, getting videos, getting grand prizing tools to do your job but when they come back and can't even give me the answer of what's happening and just immediately come back and say hey we need more from you it's like let's let's have a conversation let's work on this together that would be much easier interaction in my world and i think that it would be a great learning experience for other people too another thing that really drives me nuts is we all know that video is ruling right now in terms of socials. I still have, although it hasn't happened in a while because we're providing ad mats. In my experience, I feel that promoters have no problem buying ad mats, but will not buy video content. And to be able to put together really valuable, strong video content is expensive. And I've seen a lot of pushback saying that if we provide it, promoters will use it and push it out, but they don't want to buy it. They don't think they need to buy it. And I, I kind of struggle with that because to get really professional, great content that the artist is comfortable pushing out and not just a crappy iPhone video, there's a, a cost that's incurred there. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, do you have any advice for what promoters could do to make everyone's life easier, including their own, not just yours? I think it's a lot of just, you know, try and be a little bit more creative, try and be smarter and not just send over that same cookie cutter marketing plan that you do for every single show and sometimes forget to take the artist's name from the one you're copying and pasting and forwarding it on. Listen to the bands that they're promoting and understand what the single is and what the song is and talk to radio when you can and come up with a, a great idea for a promotion. I mean, we had a promoter come back to us, which then I was able to roll out across the country for the last G-Eazy tour that I worked on, where his hit single at the time was Me, Myself, and I. And they went to radio and were giving away three packs. Never heard of three packs, but it was the Me, Myself, and I promotion. I feel as if a lot of the promoters, especially in the hard rock and metal space, which is a lot of our clients, they don't listen to the bands, they don't know the albums, they don't know the songs, and then come back and not being marketed effectively. And then that makes me struggle. But, you know, be a little bit more invested in what they're doing and better understanding of the client that they're working with. And I think we can all do a better job, you know, promoting those shows. Are there any promoters that you work with, either major or independent, that have great marketing teams that you're always like stoked they have the show because that's going to be a pleasure to deal with? They always do it, right? Yes. There's a bunch of them out there. There's a bunch of them that are great all the time. There's a bunch that are great when it's the right artist and the right show. And then there's some that it's always going to be a struggle. And I think for the past five years that I've been on this side of the business, I'm still waiting on that first marketing plan that I've been asking for for five years. <laughs> what a great place to stop. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank Dan. you, Dan. 
And he is clearly just going to the next level these days, breaking new grounds with what he's doing with the Muse and Guns N' Roses, and they have so much happening at UTA. Couldn't happen to a better guy. My name is Reese Ryan Stemmer, and you can watch my daddy on Promoter 101. Celebrating some birthdays this week, Dan. It's October 30th to November 5th. Hey, Monday, October 30th, Gary Spivak. Tuesday, wishing happy birthday to Riverside Theaters. Boy in Milwaukee, Mr. Matt Berenger, happy birthday. Wednesday, artist manager to the stars, Jeff Harrison. On Thursday, happy birthday to Billy Joe Hoyles. Friday, king of the road from the Kiss Tour, Chad Guy, promoter Gino Shelton, and agent Matt Chin. On Saturday, happy birthday to Christian Wolf and John Bell. Sunday, Derek McBride and Nick Nusiforo. Happy birthday to all of you from the gang of Promoter 101. Hey, what's going on? This is Bubbles. This is Julian. And this is Ricky. You're listening to Promoter 101. <laughs> if you want to reach out to us, it's Steiny at Promoter101.net. We promise to return all of your emails in a very timely manner. We even might be polite. On our next podcast, we're going to have Paradigm's Joe Tamian. And as that wasn't enough, we're going to also be joined by Live Nation's Sean Striegel and a war story from Conway Entertainment Group's Mr. Tony Conway. Until then, we're wishing you sold-out shows for the weeks to come. Cheers. This is Tom Wildridge from Ticketmaster, and you're listening to Promoter 101.